Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon and welcome back to the We Got Planning News for You. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Welcome to our YouTube viewers as well. Please don't forget to subscribe to our channel. And please do, as we always say, consider making a charity donation in lieu of a registration fee, either to NHS Combined Charities Just Giving Page or Shelter or a charity of your choice. Now, we're delighted to welcome this afternoon Anna Rose, head of the LGA's Planning Advisory Service. Anna, thank you so much indeed for joining us. Um, can you tell us where you're calling from uh, and, and what you've chosen as your theme this evening and, and what you're drinking? Right, so I'm calling from a little village on the border of Warwickshire and Northamptonshire. And my theme is 90s indie music. Um, I have, you know, the garb on. Um, and you all said you'd dress up. Thank you, Chris. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm feeling like I've walked into some sort of party that I didn't know the theme of. Um, and... Um, and I'm drinking, actually, I've gone, I've, I've gone to market. I usually just drink Yorkshire tea, but I've got the one with vanilla and nutmeg in it tonight. So, you know, ah, having a treat. Fantastic. It's about, the, it's about the first time in a long time no one's had Yorkshire tea on this show. That's a, that's a permanent theme. Um, sorry about not, not complying with the, the 90s music, but I refuse to recognise that any music was created after the 31st of December 1989. <laughs> well, uh, we're look, hugely looking forward to our discussion with you um, later on in the second half of the show. As, we all, as I always say to all our guests, please, by all means, chip into any of the stuff we discuss in the first half, should you so wish, but no, no obligation. Um, Chris... How are you doing there? You seem to be um, rather excited about the football. Yes, yes, I am very excited. Although that's not me, that's presumption. I'll come to that in a minute. Ah. Anna, I was never going to let you down. Of course I was going to get into character. Uh, and uh, I've got a vinyl quiz for us. We've done this before. Okay, first on the names of the album covers. This is uh, your theme was uh, Brit Bands of the 90s. Who's that? Oh. Come on. It's the same as your T-shirt. Oasis. Oasis, yeah. But what's the album called? What's the album called? It's What's the Story Morning Glory, is it? Oh, you're no slouch, are you? You're no slouch. Okay, all right. That's the first one. Uh, what about this one? Uh, blur. Yeah. yeah. Well done, Anna. Yeah, well done, Anna. Okay, it's one apiece. Let's have the decider. Let's have the decider. <laughs> The rest of you get on with it. <laughs> oh, that looks like one of the Gallagher brothers on the right, but there's no <laughs> come on, bittersweet. Verve, urban oh, we have a winner, we have a winner. Anna. Anna is the winner, it is indeed. Do you know what? This guy here turned up at my inquiries, the main objector. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, um. 
So, uh, yeah, I've been having a good week. I've been visiting everything. Golf courses, cornfields, wheat fields, all greenfield, obviously, all suitable for development. Uh, uh, presumption is completely overexcited. What an amazing, what a truly amazing match. Uh, I think full respect to Raheem Sterling. Yeah. Mm. But also, I think we can't mention, he came on quite late, but Raheem Sterling, uh, um, uh, Jack Grealish. <laughs> Jack Grealish. <laughs> and I'm drinking Mad Goose, which is purity from... Uh, from Warwickshire. Mary, how are you doing? I'm fine. Good afternoon. Hello, Anna. Lovely to see you on the show. Well, I dug out the Sunday Times indie. This is one of the CDs we used to play in the car. And I have to say that um, I'm a little older than some of you, and I was producing children in the 1990s. <laughs> and our go-to band was R.E.M., you were absolutely crazy REM fans. And when you mentioned Warwickshire, I'm afraid I think of none other than cricket. Ah, and good. so and in my little homage to Sasha, I thought I'd get a cricket bat, bat out. Some of us were children in the 1990s. But oh, not- yeah, stop bragging. Stop <laughs> yeah, yeah. bragging. I've told you off before about that, Charlie. <laughs> you walked into that one, Mary. <laughs> Paul, how, how are you, mate? I'm very well indeed. Um, hello, Anna. Uh, thank you for the theme. Uh, and for my piece... I can give you the Stone Roses uh, limited Whoa. edition uh, disc, which was as soon as they split up. I can also give you what I was listening to uh, uh, on, which is this. I still have it. And this was my other go-to thing. This for anybody. Sorry, Charlie, this is a cassette tape. It's a magnetic <laughs> reel which plays. So, And for my beer, I'm happy to say I'm also on the, pur- pur- the uh, Purity Brewery, but I'm on Pure Ubu if that's how it's pronounced, and uh, I'll tell you what it's like when I take the top off. Cheers, Paul. Sash, how are you? I'm very well, Charlie. Good evening. And I'm going to show you, as Chris has started a quiz, I'm going to check our viewers to see who can recognise what the back... That is the back of one of the most famous listed buildings, if not the most famous listed building in sport. Anyone get it? No. Ellen uh, Riley. Lords. Me. I thought Mary would get Lord, it. Lords. Back, back of the well done, Mary, the Lord's Pavilion, where I am sitting currently waiting. I wouldn't I wouldn't expect any any other venue from, from you. So uh, and I have to apologize to Anna, but surprise, surprise, you can't get in here without a jacket and tie. So if I look like Chris, I'll now be on my ear in St. John Wood <laughs> Road. So yeah. and you can't you can't really talk about Warwickshire, I imagine, too, in the I home of the MCC. No, exactly. Only Middlesex here tonight. <laughs> uh, cheers, Sash. Well, Charlie Bradley here from Keaton Chambers. I did have something from, from Northampton. I was scoring the um, uh, beer shelves in my local Tesco to try and find something from Warwickshire or Northampton. Didn't, but I managed to find um, peanut butter cups produced in Northampton. But unfortunately, I ate them because I was really <laughs> hungry this afternoon. So I now just have the wrapper, but it is from Northampton. So there we are. That's at least my contribution to the theme. My beer is um, something called Love and Hate, which I fear was likely to feature in my household on Saturday night. Um, because um, as regular viewers will know, um, I'm in a half Ukrainian, half English household. It's going to present a degree of divided loyalty um, at the weekend. Um, my my children, unfortunately, are too young to choose sides. So they won't have to choose between supporting England and being sold. Um, but that's probably for the better for them. Um, anyway, without further ado, uh, we're going to start with um, a case about Stonehenge. Um, and appropriate enough, it's Paul to, 
to discuss that. Um, my, my theme, as, as always, as you know, Charlie, is rabbit holes. So I've gone down a rabbit hole because it's Stonehenge. Did you know that Stonehenge was in private ownership until 1915, until it was purchased by Cecil Chubbs, Sir Cecil Chubbs, as a gift for his wife for 6,000 guineas? So when Ukraine lose uh, on Saturday, Charlie, that's the sort of thing, that's the level you need to pitch it at to apologise to Tetiana. <laughs> uh, in fairness, he exchanged the, uh, the the ownership of Stonehenge at the end of the First World War in exchange for a baronetcy at the time that Lord George was swapping baronetcies for uh, for gifts. But there we are. But um, Paul, that doesn't, don't, that doesn't don't, happen anymore, does it? <laughs> don't move, Paul, don't move on without noting the solicitors, Farron and Kay. We've got to have a shout out to them. <laughs> well, Sir Cecil Chubb was in fact a solicitor in Wiltshire, so it's it was a legal purchase. Um, anyway, anybody who's been to Stonehenge will know that the A303 runs immediately adjacent to Stonehenge uh, and rather detracts from the, the experience of being there. Um, so if, if Rob's got uh, uh, the, the, the next picture, government has been trying for several decades to try and resolve that. And this is from the Highway Agency website, which shows what the Highways Agency thinks. So Highways England now, long time since they've been the Highways Agency, thinks will be the effect of the tunnel which was approved by the Secretary of State as a development consent order last November. Um, most viewers will probably well, most viewers will probably be aware that this was quite a controversial DCO, and in fact, the panel recommended that the DCO should not be confirmed. Um, however, the Secretary of State decided that the DCO should be confirmed, and within six weeks of the confirmation order, uh, there was a challenge by way of judicial review under five grounds which Mr. Justice Holgate said should be result, should be dealt with as a rolled up hearing. That's where permission isn't decided first. It's where permission and the substantive hearing are all decided at the same hearing. And that's important because partway through the process, after the complainants had got uh, the Secretary of State's evidence, the complainant said, well, now we've seen the evidence, we've now got an issue of predetermination and we want to argue predetermination as well as an extra ground. And that was the issue that came before Mr. Justice Holgate. Um, and... Uh, uh, firstly, it had been refused on the papers to add this extra ground by Mr Justice Waxman, um, but Mr Justice Holgate on the rene renewal application grappled with this particular uh, uh, issue. The, the argument was, was said by uh, counsel for the claimant to, to in fact be an unnecessary one because it was contended that because permission hadn't yet been granted, that the consent of the court wasn't needed to amend the pleadings. Uh, Mr Justice Holgate described that as a bizarre argument. You can always tell you're having a bad day in court when the court uses language like that uh, in respect of your submissions. Never happened to me, honest. Uh, the <laughs> substantive point was that Mr Justice Holgate said, well, the test for amending once you've got permission is whether your ground is arguable. It makes no sense at all for the test to be a lower threshold um, if you've got a rolled up hearing, even though permission hasn't been granted because of the overriding objective which it, all those who are well-versed with the CPR will know is to try and minimise costs. So Mr Justice Holgate said the test is exactly the same on a rolled-up hearing for amending your pleadings as it is for amending your pleading as, uh, after permission has been granted. But it's quite a forthright kicking into touch, uh, to use a football metaphor, which somehow seems appropriate this week. Thank you, Charlie. Ah. Cheers, Paul. Uh, well, I'm next up. Uh, I'm going to talk about a uh, appeal decision um, which results in a, a success for William Davis Limited at a site um, near Melton Road uh, in a place called Burton in the Worlds in, in Charwood District in Leicester, Leicestershire. Um, and this uh, concerned an appeal against non-determination 
of an outline application for up to 70 dwellings on an unallocated greenfield site. You'll like this one, Chris, uh, outside but adjacent to um, the settlement boundary of, of this village called Burton in the Wells. Now, an important piece of context is that the local authority didn't have a five-year supply and they acknowledged that um, uh, they had about three and a half year supply. Uh, and after the appeal um, was processed, um, they didn't oppose the grant of, of planning permission. Indeed, they subsequently granted planning permission related to a fresh application. But the appeal was still pursued and was the subject of what appears to be fairly considerable local opposition. Now, the, the main issue was whether the site was an appropriate location for development. Um, and the inspector broke this down into a number of sub-issues, uh, the most interesting of which uh, were the uh, role of the site in, in, the, in the settlement hierarchy, landscape and visual impact, um, and the um, terms of the Wolds Villages Neighbourhood Plan, which was made in May this year. Uh, now, Within, in relation to settlement hierarchy, within the uh, 2015 Charnwood Core strategy, Burton fell within the category other settlements, uh, which wasn't at the bottom of the settlement hierarchy, but it's fairly low down. And within this category, the adopted local plan allowed for small scale infield development to meet local needs within defined development limits. And the site was outside, albeit adjacent to, those development limits and was subject, therefore, to policies which the inspector described as highly restrictive in nature, which allowed development only in a small number of categories. We're all fairly familiar with those kinds of policies. Uh, and the development wouldn't fall into any of those limited categories and was therefore in conflict with uh, those aspects of, of the local plan and, and core strategy. Um, but the development, uh, uh, sorry, the inspector considered that those policies were more restricted than the framework envisages. Um, and I went on to say that uh, the council had itself granted permission outside settlement boundaries and other locations to address its uh, five-year supply shortfall. Uh, and the inspector considered that those were relevant factors in considering the weight to be given to this conflict with the settlement hierarchy policies. Um, now, the neighbourhood plan itself set out a limited number of circumstances where housing would be acceptable outside development limits. And again, the proposal wouldn't meet any of those requirements. Um, however, uh, the neighbourhood plan also identified a existing housing estate called Seals Close as being within the development limits of Burton. And the inspector noted that that uh, estate was actually as far or further from facilities in the village than the appeal site. And uh, therefore, comparatively speaking, compared to that other location, which was within the neighbourhood plan development limits, the appeal site scored quite well. Uh, and that, that suggested that the actual harm to the, to the settlement hierarchy strategy in the neighbourhood plan would be uh, limited. Uh, on landscape visual impact, the inspector thought that the change from open field to housing was bound to have an adverse effect, um, and therefore there would be some conflict with relevant development plan policies related to landscape and visual and character. However, the inspector thought that those impacts would be highly localised and therefore only moderate, moderate rate given to the harm caused. So far, largely uh, turning on its facts, albeit fairly pragmatic reasoning from the inspector. Um, but in relation to the neighbourhood plan, uh, the inspector's uh, findings about whether the neighbourhood plan gained the protection of paragraph 14 of the framework, notwithstanding the five-year supply deficit, are a potentially wider application. Now, the inspector saw criterion B of paragraph 14 of particular importance, and that states that the protection under framework paragraph 14 to apply, the neighbourhood plan must contain policies and allocations to meet its identified housing requirement. Now, um, in relation to the uh, identified housing requirement, uh, the supporting text 
to one of the policies in the Labour plan said, said this, Burton on the Wolds might be said to be expected to deliver at least 36 dwellings. Now, leaving aside the rather woolly language, the inspector held this couldn't uh, amount to an identified housing requirement um, for two reasons. Um, firstly, um, the figure was only in supporting text and therefore doesn't have the status of development plan policy. That's for planning 101, see Chartley Golf Club. And secondly, uh, the figure was based upon a proportionate share of the only provisional housing figure for other settlements in the draft new local plan that was untested and still at an early stage, it carried little weight. And so the inspector thought that the, the figure of uh, about 36 or might be expected to deliver about 36 wasn't based on any up-to-date assessment of local needs, didn't form part of the development plan, wasn't therefore an identified housing requirement for the purposes of paragraph 14, the framework. That was enough to deprive the neighbour plan of paragraph 14 protection, but the, the inspector went further and said, um, on top of this, to get the protection of paragraph 14, um, a neighbour plan must contain policies and allocations to meet the identified need. Windfall policies aren't enough. And the Neighbour Plan only identified one single site for any form of housing. Um, and the relevant policy relating to that site, which was called Sturdy Farm, uh, was set, said that that site would be released in accordance with the draft new local plan when that draft new local plan was adopted and only if a local housing requirement is identified a new local plan for which the site was appropriate. So hardly a ringing endorsement of the site. Um, and the inspector said this, it's clear therefore that the Sturdy Farm site is not intended to be released prior to the adoption of the new local plan. And even in those circumstances, this would only be the case if the plan identifies an additional extra need Therefore, even if the 36 dwellings were an identified requirement now, the Sturdy Farm site isn't seen as the means to identify this need. It was about a future local plan identified need. So for that reason, too, the Neighbour Plan didn't obtain the, uh, the protection of paragraph 14. So some interesting observations there relating to when a neighbour plan uh, gets the benefit of the uh, paragraph 14 protection, even where there's a five-year supply shortfall, um, and observations which seem to me could be relevant to, to other cases. Pulling it all together, the inspector then applied paragraph 11D, uh, uh, due to the lack of the five-year supply, considered the adverse impacts, the granted commission didn't significantly demonstrably outweigh the benefits, and allowed the appeal. So, um, well done, Guion Lewis, um, uh, in that case, in obtaining commission William Davis. Now, um, Mary, we're going to go from Leicester to, to Westminster, and you're going to tell us about a tall building appeal there. Yes, this is in fact in Lambeth, in the London borough of Lambeth, and this was you and I and the London Fire Commissioner's uh, um, appeal, which was sadly dismissed. And I say sadly because this involves um, a site which has been the subject of uh, uh, this is the second uh, dismissed uh, appeal over the last 10 years in relation to this site. So you can see that um, this was a part redevelopment and restoration, conversion and extension of a 1930s grade two listed building built for the London Fire Brigade. And the proposal was to turn that plus um, the site. And we've, we've got some pictures we'll come to in a moment. But it was basically for a new station and a museum. Uh, residential development, a rooftop restaurant, which turned out to be uh, a problem as far as the inspector was concerned, 10-storey hotel, and the erection of a 26-storey building uh, for uh, commercial development plus residential, and then a, an 11-storey building for C3 development. So there's the site. So it's three sort of parcels, um, and the fire brigade um, 
listed building is the, at the front, um, facing onto the Thames. And so this was all about, in the end, um, good growth, optimization, making effective use of land in the CAZ, the Central Activity Zone, in an opportunity area, versus um, heritage asset um, considerations. And Lambeth, the local authority, had supported the proposal. It was called in by the Secretary of State. It was opposed by Westminster City Council. Uh, and I should explain Rupert uh, Warren was acting for the developers. Uh, Matthew Reed was acting for Lambeth and Charles Stretton was acting for uh, Westminster. And a, a, a gentleman called, called Michael Ball, who if, if anybody's done any work in relation to uh, Lambeth or the South Bank, they will know Michael Ball very well. He was acting for uh, a group the inspector described as Lambeth Village. Historic England did not object to the scheme. And there were many... Um, uh, benefits, the inspector said. Now, what you're looking, you're looking there at a view and lit up is the rooftop terrace and you see the towers um, in the background. Now you see uh, on top of the retained, refurbished, converted HQ, again, the restaurant, and you see the towers behind in, in that view. So what was the, up, the upshot of all of this was that the inspector found that the internal works of conversion to the listed building and the additional rooftop would bring less than substantial harm to the listed building, to its setting, and to the Albert Embankment conservation area in which it sat. He also found that there would be very limited and certainly less than substantial harm to Lambeth Palace, which is just uh, along the way there uh, to the left of, of this picture, to the Archbishop's Palace, the old Paradise Gardens and the Lambeth Palace conservation area. But the really, uh, uh, I, I think, an, an, another really um, difficult issue uh, for the appellants here was the effect on the setting on the Palace of Westminster, a World Heritage Site, and uh, obviously of the highest significance. And uh, the inspector there focused in particular on two views. One was from Primrose Hill and one was from Parliament Hill. And the scheme would, be, would have been uh, appear, appear in the background of these two designated and protected views. And Historic England, as I say, had not uh, uh, objected, nor had the Mayor of London. And the applicant's assessment of the views was based on the naked eye. But the objector's uh, assessment relied heavily on zoomed in and magnified photographs. And the inspector agreed that there would be some visitors carrying binoculars when looking at these views from these locations. And he considered that those views... Um, would uh, 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 again give rise to less than um, significant uh, harm, substantial harm. But in, he also had to consider the ICOMOS test and he had to consider the impact on the outstanding universal value of the World Heritage Site. And he found that they would cause moderate adverse impact. And Historic England gave evidence on those points and he accepted that evidence. And the person who gave evidence on behalf of Historic England was not the same case officer who had done the consultation response. You see how things can unravel. Uh, so th there was another issue, which was daylight and sunlight. And the previous scheme had gone down on daylight and sunlight issues. And partly in response to the daylight and sunlight uh, issues that they had to contend with, 
the developers had in fact made the towers taller. And that was another issue which the inspector noted because Historic England had tried to get them to reduce. But because of the daylight and sunlight issues, they felt unable to do so. And so uh, what, one other thing I think, I think to mention was that um, the daylight and sunlight exceedances also uh, were tested by the uh, appellant in, in this way. They looked at a block in the area in order to demonstrate that their proposal was going to give rise to daylight and sunlight levels, which were not dissimilar to levels already enjoyed by residents in a block in Lambeth. They chose the very block that Mr. Michael Ball had once lived in. He described how he had um, the onset of depression whilst living in the block. And the inspector made a link not just on the basis of that evidence, but also other evidence between exceedances of daylight and sunlight and public health and mental health issues. So I think, I think that this decision um, will have some far reaching consequences potentially because he was, although he was taken to other appeals in London where had there been exceedances, uh, Whitechapel, Graphite Square, which we've discussed on this show before, the inspector um, regarded the, uh, the daylight and sunlight on exceedances, daylight in particular, or exceedances, as another reason um, for uh, which weighed against the grant of planning permission. So I'm afraid to say that despite all the benefits, and there were considerable benefits, and he, he had some very nice things to say about the scheme, he found in the end that the 196 test um, resulted in a decision that permission be restricted. He disagreed with the appellant that the proposals overall accorded with the development plan. And he recommended to the Secretary of State that permission be refused and the Secretary of State accepted that. And so very sadly, um, 10 years on native land and no further forward. And more importantly, perhaps also the London Fire Brigade find themselves in a very difficult position. Thanks, Mary. I, I'm assuming that Michael Ball you described wasn't the first Michael Ball who came into my mind. No. The 1990s hit, uh, very much on theme. No. Now, um, in, in recent weeks, we seem to be the, the Zach Simons promotion show. So uh, off the back of his fantastic win in Colney Heath, uh, he's won another case in Newark. Chris is going to tell us all about it. Yes, yes. This is the second most important appeal decision uh, you'll ever... Oh, no, that's next week. Sorry. Um, uh, this one is um, about a site in uh, Nottinghamshire. And uh, if Rob just brings up the title page, we can see it is in the picturesque village of Billsthorpe. Um, and uh, it's an appeal for 103 dwellings. Um, and the appeal was allowed. Now, we've got some images. I love your images for that last slot, Mary. Fantastic. A story brilliantly told, if I may say so. Uh, so there we have. Uh, you'll probably recognise that as a housing scheme. Um, look at the attention to detail there. Uh, it's all about the detail and the design uh, in this case. And uh, that's the layout. And then I think we've got an aerial shot. Uh, have we, Rob? There we go. That is uh, that's the edge of Billingsfort. And the site is um, next to the word design and access statement. So that's parcel of land there. That's the site. Um, now, um, it's mostly about design issues. So if we go to the next slide, uh, what I need to tell you is, oh, there you go. There it is. It's in the red. That's the location of the site. And uh, that is Bill's Fort. Now, if we look at the front page again, the bottom part of it, 
The inspector observes there was already outlined planning permission for 85 dwellings. So uh, what we're really talking about here uh, is um, is 18 dwellings, uh, and that's the difference between the two. However, the inspector observed, although the appellants had started to say it was the fallback, um, it was imminently to expire. And Zach tells me today it was only a matter of days away from expiring at the time of the appeal, so they couldn't rely upon it on a fallback. Um, and uh, as a consequence, that wasn't available to them. Um, a number of issues. If we go to page two, um, we've got an issue um, about the site. It is allocated as well as having an extant planning permission. Uh, paragraph 13, uh, the policy said around 75 dwellings. And Zach obviously cross-examined on any attempt to limit that. The council accepted at the inquiry. That means through cross-examination generally accepted that this was a notional figure and it didn't fix the density. So uh, it's no good councils trying to rely on whatever is a, a, an approximate or figure because, of course, at allocation site uh, stage, they've rarely been uh, master planned or um, constraints uh, considered. And the council were really pushing, I think, for the idea of a density of around 30 dwellings per hectare, whereas it was closer to 35 to 40 dwellings across the site. If we go to the next slide, a number of smaller issues. This I can't believe some of the arguments the council were raising. The landscaping, I've never seen this one before, 20. There is little before me, says the inspector, su suggests that the landscaping on the northern boundary would be short-lived. Uh, well, it wouldn't get watered, I don't know. Either due to pressure to remove it by residents or damage by refuse vehicles. So damage to trees from refuse vehicles. Terrific argument, that one. And then this one at 22. <laughs> Whilst the reason for refusal focuses on the northern boundary, a number of other matters were discussed at the inquiry. Although the council criticises the absence of screening on the southern boundary to soften views of the ambulance station. Right. When did you need to soften views of an ambulance station? That doesn't sound like a great argument to me either. Um, but the council uh, were not successful in this or indeed any of their arguments. Uh, if we go to the next section, a bit more substance here. Um, here, the council uh, were suggesting, if you look about halfway through paragraph 38, that um, in their assessment, it didn't meet the requirements of building for a healthy life. That's a new bit of guidance we're quite often seeing LPAs refer to. Inspector, very clear there. It's not mandatory. It's guidance and there's no hard and fast rules. Uh, paragraph 39. Now, this is interesting. Council's design witness submitted two alternative schemes. Uh, and that's always difficult with a detailed scheme, isn't it? If the if the council turned up and said, well, you could design it differently. Not not appropriate. The, the inquiry is there to consider the scheme that is before the inquiry, not to suggest there might be some alternative. And the inspector, as you can see, dismisses that, said there wasn't enough detail provided by the council. And so as a consequence of which um, uh, dismissed that argument. Next, we had an argument about the housing mix and uh, they were mostly four bedroom dwellings, as you can see from paragraph 44. Council argued that the, uh, their own assessment had identified two and three bedroom properties and to a lesser extent, two bedroom flats. And there were no bungalows in the scheme. But again, the inspector said, look, you haven't got a policy that requires that. Uh, so as a consequence, uh, the lack of bungalows wasn't required. Well done, Zach. I think you cross-examined in the fact there were lots of bungalows in that particular district. And then finally, probably the most important part of the case, 
I think, uh, which is uh, paragraphs 54 to 55. Space standards. We hear a lot about this. I get asked to advise about this a lot of time. Not meeting the government's space standards. 65% of them, you can see at paragraph 54, would fall short of the national space standards. Um, but as the inspector rightly observed, the council had not adopted a policy requiring compliance with the standards. And that's how it works. You need a policy to apply that. The, the PPG is very clear about that. And that's another reason why local authorities ought really to get their plan in place, because if they want all these protections, that's what they should do. So, um, yeah, the inspector rejected that argument as well. Finally, let's see who was in the case. Uh, and uh, there we go. Lead vocals, Zach Simon. Anna Mir was on bass guitar. Tim Jackson was on drums. Uh, Mike Carr and Alex Roberts and Andrew Gard were in the wind section. And Jim Lomas was on lead guitar. So um, well done, Zach. Good result. Good result for the whole team. Some important principles there about local authorities not overstepping the mark with their guidance. Thanks, Chris. And I think just outside, just seen a refuse van run over a tree. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, um, Sasha, over to you to introduce our guest and to kick off our interview. Thank you very much, Charlie. Anna, good afternoon again. Um, can I start off? Can you just give our viewers a bit of a sense about you and your past and how your careers developed? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about this before I came on because um, there's probably nothing very revolutionary about how I came up through the ranks of local government. But I think there's a few key decisions I made along the way that are quite relevant to anybody starting now. So the first decision probably I made was to not carry on to the fourth year of a degree um, and to get out into the world of work. And um, I decided that because I thought that I would be better doing my master's with a bit of practical experience behind me. And it took me a year to get a job. So by the time I actually got into planning, I might as well have done the fourth year. But I did do my master's with the benefit of having some planning experience. So I think, you know, so so pat on the back for me, probably a bit silly because it was a time when there was no jobs. But um, I did, um, I, my first planning job was actually at the NFU. So they didn't want a planner. They didn't advertise for a planner. They clearly didn't want one. Um, and yet I applied. And, and I'd done all of my um, specialisms on rural planning. And, and I was determined I was going to get this job. And so I was the last person on a very long day of interviews. And they were very, very sweet to me. Really sweet. I was very green. And I did the whole interview. And I, I, I thought I'd re really been impressive. And I got a call probably about a week later and the, the manager there said, I don't know what we're going to do with you, but we can't not give you a job. You were so compelling and, and almost worthy that we're going to take you in and we're going to train you up and we're going to put you through the programme. So I started my job at the NFU with a load of lawyers and, and agricultural specialists and I was a planner. And I had to lead a planning advisory service at the NFU. Um, but I also had to do transport environment tenancy law. And the panel here might appreciate that having a planning degree didn't really <laughs> equip me <laughs> for, for, for that high task. So I was on a steep learning curve and um, I did four years at the NFU. I've still got friends from that. Um, and I wrote articles. I really made the most of that job. I, I went full on into it. 
And it got to um, four years in and I decided, like, I don't know how many people do this, but I thought if you went to work in planning, you have to work in a council. And so I then made a step and, and I made it my mission to get a job in a council. And by the time I left the NFU, I was leading a team, I was mentoring staff, but I started at Rugby Borough Council as a senior planning officer in their policy team. So quite low down the ranks. And I was bringing in the 2004 Act. So I was bringing in the local development framework and everybody else was working on the old system. So um, yet again, Anna's got herself a job where she's in a bubble <laughs> working on her own when everybody else is working on the thing that matters. Um, so I, I brought on the 2004 Act. And, and again, very worthy. I, I did put all my efforts into it. Um, and I, I made my way up through the, through the ranks. Um, so I became a principal officer, then you know, team leader, and then head of planning. And, and I've sort of always just, just gone on this journey that actually, if you can make everybody else believe you can do it, you can do it. And so I, I've, I've gone on through. And um, when I was head of planning at rugby, we did some really cool work. You know, so um, we did um, Halton on the edge of rugby, which is 6,000 house site. Rugby had never done anything like that before. It was huge. And, and we, we tackled it as a planning team as a whole. We also led the way in terms of service delivery. So we did systems thinking review before anybody else had really scratched the surface of that. And we we're in a book and, you know, as, as um, I suppose, leading the way pioneers in terms of system thinking. But actually what launched, I suppose, my in my national career was that I made it a mission of my economic development role at rugby to go out and talk about how we were open for business. And so I got myself on the Coventry Warwickshire LEP as the planning chair of the planning group. I worked with developers, I worked with planners, and I made it our mission in Warwickshire to try and improve the reputation we had for being open for business. I got myself onto national stages talking about that. I had, you know, so I got my, I got involved with the Planning Officers Society. I got myself in the network and I was talking to all sorts of audiences. So by the time I got the job at Milton Keynes as director, I was already really well known for, for the things that I'd done in terms of local government. But yet again, I was a, a wild card into the post at Milton Keynes. The, the um, recruitments consultants didn't want me to, to apply. They, they basically discouraged me. And the, um, I was determined that I was going to put the application in. So I wrote it and I did all of the work for it. And I met the new chief exec. So Carol Mills, I owe a huge thank you to, who interviewed me on my first interview and, and worked to get me through that process because she saw something that obviously the, the recruitment consultants didn't. And I had a wonderful nearly three years at Milton Keynes. We did um, the 2050 vision. We did um, all sorts of service reviews. It was really hard, but actually working in a new town with a tariff and, and somewhere that I'd studied at Geography A-level will, will never leave me. I think it's, it's got to be one of those things that you've got to do. If you've studied somewhere at A-level, go and work there and try and lead the charge. And, and my last year at Milton Keynes was as president of the Planning Officer Society. And so natural move when Alice moved on from the Planning Advisory Service. Again, I think I finally, guys, I finally found a job that I was suited to that everybody thought I could do. And, <laughs> and, um, and here I am. 
So been in the advisory service since 2017. And um, yeah, you, it, it takes a while. But um, finally, people think you fit the mould that, that's set for you. So I think I'm here. <laughs> the Holy Grail, which well I think none, of, none of us have yet hit. Tell us a bit about the planning advisory service. What, what do you see its fundamental role? What does it seek to do in essence? In my interview actually for this job, I said I see the planning advisory service as a blue light service. It's, it's there to help local authorities in a time of need. And it's and I think the planning advisory service, and I know this from heading up planning services in councils, you can go on our website or you can contact us and we will give you information. We usually have a toolkit for whatever you're doing. We will have an advice note that tells you how to do it. If we haven't got an advice note, one of us will talk you through it. You know, there's, we provide the headspace and the thinking and the sometimes the creativity that local government sometimes doesn't have time for at the minute. And, and we work really closely with the ministry to um, make sure that any policies that they're looking at, we can help local authorities to try and get the best out of them and to do the best by delivery of them. Um, and that can be through, you know, the courses we offer, but it's also a lot of direct support and a lot of things that people don't see. So I don't know if anybody knows, but the, the planning advisory service was set up with the 2004 reforms. So it was um, with a slug of the planning delivery grant and by the ODPM. So, yeah. it, you know, it was to bring through those reforms and, and how timely, actually. We've been through various shapes and sizes over the years, but we're on the brink of another set of reforms and we're still as relevant as we were there. And, and I think that the, the comments we get from councils just show that they really value what we do and, and that there is a growing need for the services that we provide. Well, I was about to say, do you, are you finding your services more in demand with every passing year or less? I think it's, it, it changes, actually. So I think they're more in demand. But the things that councils need are becoming more and more bespoke in terms of what they are needing from the planning advisory service. So I would think that when I was back in councils, we probably wouldn't have more of the same things from the planning advisory service. As we've grown and morphed, um, I think our skills are being stretched and challenged in a nice way to try and adapt to all the different circumstances that councils um, find themselves in. And, you know, my, my specialism has always been local plans. And I think that, you know, we all see local plans and think, Oh, they're pretty similar aren't they but actually the challenges may be on paper the same but they're very very different when you get into a council and try and and try and help them work through them um, and so the demand for what we offer is going up um, because I think also because of the stretched situation the councils find themselves in so that point I made about creating capacity our team create a capacity that just isn't there at the moment and without that um I'm not sure some of the processes and some of the things that have been brought in. So I'm thinking particularly over COVID, we did a huge amount of work to take away the reading from councils in terms of what they had to put in place. And, and we've been thanked for that time and time again, actually, for, for what we did during that period, just to get councils through that, that hurdle of COVID and the first lockdown. And I think that's interesting. Do you, find, do you find your services and is it a split between the DM function and the policy function? Is it broadly 
Well, gosh, it's much more nuanced than that, actually. So we have a core programme, which is I probably describe as local plans, decision making, infrastructure, spending, governance and delivery. So that that would be the heart of the PAS programme that we would probably be doing every year. And then we have uh, a whole raft of other things that we're working on. And, you know, I was looking and I was thinking, actually, we do we're doing town centres, free ports, design. Uh, we're doing councillor training, urban regeneration, nutrients with neutrality. We're doing benchmarking, you know, for costs and resources. And we also got a DEFRA programme running on the environment. Bill. So it, 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 it doesn't split down that easily um, because we're doing so many things. Mm. But if you asked us what we spent the most money on, it's local plans. And if, uh, yeah, we noticed on a previous case, we did the Seven Oaks local plan where there had been a kind of a dry run, an audit of the process done. Um, can, I, can I just ask you about the morale? You obviously speak to, to mm. planners, local authority planners every day, probably the majority of the day. How would you describe the morale of local authority officers currently? I think it's, it, it, it differs. So um, I think there is a general sense of isolation, and I don't think that's different to actually most of the population at the moment. I think a year and a half of working at home and being um, physically distant from the team you're working in is just quite hard. And local government officers are no different to that. You know, it's it's been difficult. And I think the more junior or new you are into a council, the harder that becomes. Mm -hmm. Added to that, actually, is the complaints and enforcement cases that have gone through the roof over uh, over this period um there's nothing worse for the planning system it appears than us all sitting looking out of our back windows that has generated <laughs> the complaints on the minutiae of what their ne- what neighbors are doing to a record that i don't think we've seen in local government for many many years and it really is a consequence of people being trapped in their own homes and seeing a lot more of what's going on. <laughs> um, so, you know, if there's any reason to get out of this lockdown, let's save the planning service and get people going to a different area instead, she says tongue in cheek. Um, but there's, um, I think there's recruitment is causing issues. In the Southwest, you can't get hold of a planner. You know, it is really, really difficult. So those teams are seeing that nobody wants to come in and work with them. That's quite hard, actually. And the uncertainty, I think the uncertainty will always be a morale dipper for for local government. And we're in a period where we're all waiting for things to happen. However, what I will say is the planners I'm speaking to are really hopeful, actually, about some of the things that have been mentioned. And, and, you know, some of the stuff around plan making, um, you know, smaller evidence base, community engagement right at the beginning, not right at the end standardised DM policies, you know, these sort of things are, are a bright light at the end of the tunnel sort of stuff for people who are maybe three or four people who've been trying to get a plan dragged out, you know, for, for a few years. If you could make it a bit, a bit easier to do it, then we'll do a really good job on it, you know, and uh, I think some of the things that have been uh, mooted are are really important things for morale in local government. And it'd be really nice if we could see some of the things that would really help coming through in terms of the reforms. Um, And we do have a brilliant group of local government officers and they're really positive. And and I think I wouldn't like everybody to go away from this thinking that morale is so bad and and that's why they're seeing poor performance. Morale actually is, is not great, but there is a lot of good in the system and actually they're just drowning 
in terms of everybody's unhappiness with being trapped at home, I think is how I put it. Okay, could I just ask you then, in in the terms of resources, that brings me to my final question I want to ask you about, and the resources, and it's a kind of recurring theme almost Mm -hmm. on a weekly basis. How how do we, what's your view, obviously, with your experience, how do we increase the resources? Yeah, I think there's there's two sides to this. So the the first is one that I don't think anybody on their own is going to sort out, and that's funding. Um, you can't take away the fact that over 10, you know, since 2010, 16 billion has been lost from local government and planning services have, you know, half their spending. So, it, it, you know, you just you can't take that away. Um, you also can't take away the fact that the planning fees don't pay for the planning service. So when you're reducing the local government monies, you're you're reducing the ability to pay pay for the planning service because the fees don't cover what planning services are doing. And I think that is a conundrum um, that that, um, fee increases alone aren't going to do it. It it needs a complete review of how planning services are funded to sort that out. I think the other thing that I will always talk about is how we make up our planning services. So how do we make them better so they're better equipped? To deal with what's what's coming their way and I think actually some of the answers are beyond planning um, and uh, I you know there's different disciplines that need to come into the planning arena to make a whole system for placemaking. Um, public practice does a, a, a really good job at taking council requirements and turning them into positions through associates and very I'd say very few of the associates they put into councils of planners and quite you know that's by design but also probably fewer than people think are designers and urban designers so project management community engagement surveyors transport and mobility you know so councils are knowing what the resources they need are they're asking for them but what we're not seeing is that they're recruiting them on a regular basis but to have the same sort of of approaches I suppose um a grown-up placemaking system would. You need a multidisciplinary team, and we can't just keep pouring planners into the system because everybody else needs resourcing too. And, and I think that's that's an interesting perspective. And I'm sure I'll get pilloried because I'm a planner, so we don't always need more planners. But I, that that is a studied view from somebody who's worked the system. Thank you. Right, Chris. What what's your question for Anna? Yeah, well, first of all, the first thing to say is, wow, you are just a breath of fresh air. You are exciting and uh, it's infectious, frankly, (laughs) listening to you. It's infectious. You're fabulous. Um, You said to me beforehand, I hope I I I meet expectations. Well, I'll tell you what, you're exceeding expectations on every level. And there are plenty of young women watching this who will just be completely inspired by you on every level. Thank you. <laughs> My question is about government. You are funded by the Ministry uh, of mm-hmm. Housing. Um, and so obviously they expect, you know, to have a dialogue with you. So how does that dialogue work? How often do you speak to them? What do they want to know from you? Because we always wonder how much the ministry actually listened to us. You know, those of us who are out in the front line um, and and you're you're at the, you know, the top of the apex for the local authorities. How do you communicate with them and what do they ask you? So I have regular meetings with Simon Gallagher and Joanna Averley. Um, I got on really well with both of them. Really great people. Um, I also have regular meetings with all the policy leads Um, and I probably don't need to, but I I like getting into some of the details so particularly around local plans 
um, and, and and I have a really good relationship with the DM team over there. It helps that one of their DM civil servants now used to work for me at Milton Keynes. <laughs> so I have, an, I have a good in. Um, but the uh, what we discuss, I think, is interesting because I don't get involved. I don't lobby. We don't lobby as PAS. That's not what we, 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 that's not what we get involved in. But what we do is try and bring back to the ministry what we've learned from council. So we take our group learning and we feed that back in to the, to the ministry. So play it back to them in terms of particularly where new policies coming in or where we're doing sort of local plans work. And we will say, this is how it feels from that point of view, you know, and this is how it's playing out. And maybe this would be a better way of doing it. I'm not saying that, you know, I get any more traction because of who I am, but I probably have a, a, a more frequent relationship with the, with our colleagues at the ministry because they are funding us to run a system for them. So, you know, there's there's a benefit in them keeping in touch with me and in me keeping in touch with them. Um, but over the years I've been at the ministry, I've built up a really good, um, you know, I have a partnership approach with them. And um, we obviously have to discuss funding and programmes and things. But I also get asked, you know, about my professional opinion on, on various matters. And I get brought into discussions um, that are about the profession and about funding and about how planning system works. And I think that's just got to be helpful. And that's why I keep my con conversations really lively with the industry, because I don't want to become um, somebody who thinks they know about local government. That really isn't the person I want to become. Um, you know, I need to know about local government if I'm going to talk about it. Don't let me become the person who harks back to the days when I used to be a director, because I think, um, yeah, my younger self would probably want to go and, you know, put her in a car boot or something. I don't, I don't want to be that person. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Mary? My question is about careers, really, and I was wondering what PASS is doing to encourage pub public sector careers, not just in planning, but as you say, the other disciplines that are required. So we ran, um, actually Rachel in our team ran, um, a really good programme called Return to Work um, for Planners, and it was for the Government Equalities Office. And we had people who had left planning for caring reasons, usually. So it was about caring um, children and the elderly family. And we were bringing them back into planning. And what we did was we set up what we still think was an immense training programme. It was 12 weeks and it had every aspect. Rachel and I hand designed it. And uh, we had um, also a almost like a job club running alongside it. So we had a lady doing daily like training on interviews, CVs, how you do local government. And at the end of it, about a third had got jobs. And, and not all in the, the public sector, but what we've been able to do was break the cycle because all of these people said to us, we've been applying for jobs and we can't get them for various reasons. Some of it was because they didn't have three years, you know, experience in the UK. Some of it was that they couldn't afford to get an RTPI membership, you know, that would get them over that hurdle. Some of it was probably, um, unfortunately, just because they hadn't worked in the UK at all. But coming back to your point, Mary, what they all had was heaps of placemaking experience. We had people who had designed like coastal towns in America, you know, Nigeria, mm. transport experts. We had, I'm thinking, which right-minded director or head of planning in a local government service wouldn't want that person front and centre leading on some of these large schemes. And so Rachel and I have made a bit of a mission <laughs> of 
trying to talk to local government about how how can you adapt your recruitment processes and your mm. advertising and it applies to the private sector as well because we're all very much of a type in planning and we need to get so much better at recognizing our needs and plugging them in and if that means giving away some of the you know the tick, tick box approach to recruitment then I'm all up for that I think we just need to open the doors and let people in to help us because if we keep going with the model we've got we're going to keep delivering what we already do and clearly mm. I, I fancy you're going to open lots of doors Anna I hope so really definitely. hope definitely thank you Mary right Paul uh, good evening again Anna um a couple of things before I ask my question. The first of which is I love Paz's website. I love the toolkits. Um, I do a great deal of work for both sides of the uh, of, uh, of the divide. And certainly when I'm advising on local plans, whichever side I'm advising on, I go to your toolkits uh, mm. and they're extremely helpful. But I don't understand why they're not hyperlinked on the PPG website. It would be the most obvious step possible to draw attention to them. So next time you speak to Simon, please tell me. I will. Me. have that. Yeah. Um, and also, why on earth there isn't a centralised list of graduate jobs for the public sector? It's just crazy. And as you know from offline discussions, that's a real serious problem behind the scenes. So anyway, put that aside. My question is, Steve Quartermain uh, has written a recent article saying there's lots of things we could do to tweak the current system that we've got without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, one of them is model policies, for example, which I know that... Um, certainly when the presumption first came in, that's not the owl, that's the policy. Um, <laughs> when, when presumption first came in, that the, there was a draft um, uh, pol model policy that was out there. Is there merit in having draft policies um, in, in a model form that don't need examining, that authorities could just adopt and get on with the real work? I suppose it's it, the question that it, it raises with me is if it's a model policy and if it doesn't need examining, is it any different to the development management policies that are going to be nationalised, you know, if they are? So, so why would you have to have a model policy if 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 oh, everybody's no. going to have the same? Oh no, no, this this is before the white paper. This is doing right. so now. You can put this as an adjunct to the to the MPPF or put it as a, an extra chapter to the PPG. Adopt that. It doesn't need examining. We could do it tomorrow. Yeah. So I suppose then coming back to what I've just said, if it was if it was in the same vein, so that later on it would then go into a compilation of national ones, then I can see the merit in that. And, and actually, I was discussing with somebody else, you know, model policies, maybe for design as well. So with the National Model Design Code, for which a lot of councils don't have a great deal of experience, I could see that templates and model policies would be really, really helpful <coughs> to try and, you know, try and trigger or hook into plans now um, how we can get design and design codes going into the future because I'm, I'm just a little bit worried that if we don't get some of these things in now we're missed we've missed it for five years while we go through transition so yeah I, I could see certainly for some of the newer areas of policy as well it would be really really helpful absolutely stop reinventing the wheel yeah. and let, let authorities focus upon the, the real differences thank you Anna that's great Carly I'm going to ask an audience question. There's lots of really good questions, but um, I think the one I'm going to go for from an anonymous uh, member is, um, based on, on PS's role in plan making, do you have a view on the various sort of plan failures that we've seen over the last few months and, and on what can be done to address it, perhaps most importantly? Well, I don't want to sound like an old record, but resources would help a lot in terms of plans. Um, I've worked in plan making a lot of, my local government career I've done a lot of plans I've done regional plans I've done you know you name it and what I can tell you is that there's never enough people to write the plan 
So um, I think, that, you know, if you start from that and um, that plan making doesn't get resourced, I think you, you don't have to wonder, do you, if you didn't pay anybody to do the job that you're asking them to do, would you expect a good outcome? And I think that's that's where I would start with that, with plan making, is that we just need to look at the resources we're putting in to the processes that are the, really the most important in terms of the planning system. Um, I think also there is, um, and my friend Katrina would expect me to say this, but I just think that you need, some of these issues just need a higher, a wider geographical um, approach. So we're doing, um, you know, biodiversity net gain, we're doing the environment bill, and I've worked on the Cambridge Oxford Arc. Actually, you cannot consider a lot of the stuff that we need to consider on a local footprint. And it's no wonder local government is struggling to do that. You can't, we just have to accept that some of the things that we want to do just require us to look, look across and over. And, and I remember when I was doing local plans in rugby and, and, and we were trying to do health and actually the health boundaries kept changing, but they never changed to just be our local area. They always changed to get bigger. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you have to, and roads don't stop at boundaries and nor do rivers and nor does green infrastructure. And there's all sorts of things that I could add to that list that would be improved by a more standardized way of addressing those cross boundary issues. I don't think that we have to start those conversations with housing numbers. Mm. Um, if Milton Keynes taught me anything about how you start good conversations with communities is you start about, you know, you start talking about the things that really matter to them that are going to be there into their children and grandchildren's lifetime. And unfortunately, they might not be the homes. They're probably going to be the rivers, the green infrastructure, all those things that make places special. And, and, and we have to start talking about what communities care about. And then we have to start making the places that, that they consider that they could live in. And, and, and I think for me, that's why I got into local government. I'm, I, I got into it so that I could try and drive a change. And, and I, don't, I don't think I mastered that when I was in councils, but I'm, I'm still hoping that sometime in my lifetime, we're gonna, get, we're gonna get something that enables planners to help communities to design really great places. And then we don't get stuck in this eternal cycle of discussing numbers of things that nobody knows who's gonna live in them. I think that that's, that's what makes me sad. Here, here. Brilliant. Well, there's thank also, you. Resources and strategy. To, <laughs> how many problems in planning could be sort of solved by those two things? Sorry, Sash. No, no, I was just going to say, Anna, thank you so much for a really captivating yeah. half an hour. Brilliant. Absolutely superb. Back to you, Charlie. Thanks, Sash. And thank you for me too. Mary, over to you. Got something to say? I have. I just want to tell everybody that uh, on the 17th of September, it's the 49th Joint Planning Law Conference at Oxford. It's not, of course, at Oxford this year. It's virtual, but it's, it's a great day. If you go onto the JPLC website, I would encourage you to join up. Do so quite swiftly because then you'll get a discount. Thanks, Thank Mary. Thanks again, Anna. Thank you to all the viewers watching both now and in the future. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Uh, 5 p.m. next Thursday. Until then, have a good weekend. Fingers crossed. Um, mm. We will be about to see an England final uh, this time next week. You never know. <laughs> Take care. Or, or a Ukrainian one. Okay. <laughs> and beat Ukraine. And if beat I've got Ukraine. a black eye, you'll know where it came from. <laughs> Take care, everybody. See you Thank next you, week. Anna. Bye-bye. Thanks, Anna. Bye. 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 Bye.
Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs>